Welcome to Prio's Peace and Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. For the last 19 years, Prio and the Uppsala University Department of Peace and Conflict have collaborated on the Uppsala Conflict Data Program. It's the world's main provider of data on organized violence and is updated each year. Today, I'm talking to Siri Olsrustad about the latest update and what kind of changes and trends we're seeing in armed conflict. Siri is a research director and research professor at Prio. Her work focuses on the human consequences of conflict, natural resources in the environment, and conflict data and trends. Welcome back to the podcast, Siri. We are talking today about UCDP Prio Conflict Data, and that's the Uppsala Conflict Data Program at Uppsala University. Um, This is a collaboration that has been going for a while now, and you're going to tell us a little bit about the history as well. Um, But every year, at least for me, this is exciting because every year you release uh, the new reports about what the trends are from the last year. And for 2020, uh, I'm very curious to see if, if there were any interesting things happening, any anomalies. Um, so we're going to get into that. Um, but to start off, can you just explain what is this actually? What is this program? So the uh, UCDP data program, they collect data on conflicts. Uh, and they have done that since uh, 2002 was the first time that uh, this uh, armed conflict data set was released uh, in collaboration with Prio. And now uh, UCDP uh, publishes this data every year. So we get an update every year. Um, and this was the sort of brainchild of uh, Peter uh, Wallensen, who was the former Dag Hammarskjöld professor at uh, UCDP. Uh, and he uh, he wanted to have something that was more uh, detailed. So previously, uh, most researchers would use uh, the correlates of war data uh, which is collected by, was started up by David Singer. Uh, but these data have a threshold of 1,000 battle deaths. So 1,000 people had to be killed within one year for us to call it a conflict. Uh, so um, Professor Wallenstein said that, why don't we go at the lower threshold? Why why do we have to keep to this 1,000? And yeah, the response he was then, well, you go and collect your own data. And that's what <laughs> he did. Uh, in close collaboration with... Uh, Prio's own is Peter Gledic. Uh, and that was the start of this. And I mean, why is it important that he went for this lower threshold? Because when I when I saw that on paper that it, it was a thousand that was the standard before and he wanted twenty-five, I mean, that's a huge difference. Uh, was it how did he come up with that number and, and why is that significant? I mean, in terms of actually being able to do research on these kinds of conflicts. So we can think about there's there's a lot of things going on between sort of 25 people uh, being killed and a thousand people being killed. And these are very different things uh, in a conflict that you only had 25 people being killed is something very, very different from 1000 people. And to better understand how conflict dynamics works, we need to sort of entangle this basically. Um, so, and, and the thing is that when we, when I say that we collect data on conflicts, it sounds very straightforward. It sounds like, okay, we're just going to count the conflicts. But it is actually 
not that straightforward and in many ways quite controversial. Um, because when you collect data numerically like we do, you have to be very rigid and you have to have a very set definition because you cannot change the definition across years because then you can't compare it. So these uh, UCTP data have a very specific definition, which are that there has to be 25 battle deaths within one calendar year. Uh, and there has to be people killed on both sides. Um, you have to have two parties to the conflict. Um, and in this podcast, I'll mainly talk about the state-based conflict, which, uh, which means that the state has to be involved at least on one side. This meaning that what are included are international conflicts, so conflicts between uh, two countries, um, or it could be civil wars where you have a state fighting an internal rebel group. Um, and the other uh, final criteria is that it has to be a contested compatibility. And this has to be either over the government, so a group wanting to take over uh, the, the government of a state, or it has to be over territory. So, for example, more autonomy or more, or just being wanting to succeed. And the reason why this is important is to be able to distinguish conflicts, and especially low threshold conflicts, from crime. And one, uh, what we would call sort of a gray area would be, for example, drug conflicts in, in Mexico, which are not really political conflicts over uh, territory or wanting to take over the state, but more of the sort of resources. So uh, Mexico is not included in the state-based conflicts. They're included in non-state conflicts, which I'll talk about later. Um, but this is because it's not, it doesn't have this political um, angle to it. Mm. And how do you actually gather the data itself? What are the sources that you use? So it's mainly used news sources. Uh, but what is uh, particular about UCDP data is that they have to have at least three sources um, showing that an event has happened. The, that is reported in three different sources. Uh, other data sets, uh, like ACLED, only uses one, and they have a much broader uh, set of events. Um, so you can say that the UCDP data is more thorough, but it's maybe also under-reporting a little bit because it has to have this really sort of secure threshold of, of what to include or not. Mm. And then why why do you collect data on conflict? I mean, maybe it's an obvious question for, for some people, especially, of course, for the researchers listening to this. They're, they're going to be, like, shouting <laughs> at the air. Of course, we would collect data. But why is this important to, to collect this data? So it's important for us to, to better understand how the landscape actually looks. Uh, and when they started collecting this data back in, in the early 2000s, they didn't really know what this sort of conflict curve looks like, sort of how many conflict each year. And there was an expectation that it was actually increasing. So starting in 1946 and then just increasing. And this is partly because the media is reporting more and more. Sort of we see more and more horrible news in the media and exposed to it. So we would expect that um, there's more conflict in the world. But what it actually turned out is that we see there's an increase in conflict, number of conflicts, up until early 1990s when the Soviet Union fell. And then we see a quite a dramatic decrease. And the late 2000, it was 
quite peaceful period in the world, actually. Uh, and then in the more recent decades, we have seen an increase again, and I'll get back to, to that increase. Um, it is also what we also see is this um, what type of conflicts we see, because this uh, state based uh, conflicts can be divided into four categories. So I already mentioned international wars. Uh, countries fighting each other and then we have colonial wars which would be uh, wars in the col colonies we have civil wars and then we have something called international civil wars which are civil wars where you have a third party a third country supporting one of the groups this is most most of the time it's the state being supported but not always for example in ukraine russia is supporting the the rebel groups in the eastern parts uh, and what we have seen is that uh, in sort of in the period before uh, 1989, there is more international wars, more colonial wars. Uh, of course, we don't have any colonial wars anymore, but these were quite uh, brutal wars. And then, as time goes by, we see an increase of civil wars. Uh, and now we hardly have any international wars, and the ones that we have are quite. Uh, small, basically. But what we have seen in the last few, uh, last decade is an increase of international civil wars. So there is sort of a globalization of civil wars going on, uh, which is interesting because it it's not international wars, but you do have a lot more actors and, and the international and global aspect becomes more important. Um, and then it's, of course, this is important for research uh, purposes, uh, that we have good data to be able to to look at these different types of conflicts. But it's also important for the policy community. Uh, and there is an increase within the policy community to be more interested in numbers and methodology. Uh, and also researchers are becoming better at communicating this data. Uh, so it is important to be able to give uh, the policy community a better overview, basically. Yeah. So let's go to 2020. What is the cons conflict landscape looking like today? So in 2020, we have 56 unique conflicts. Uh, and note that uh, one country can have several conflicts because it's a it, one conflict counts as the compatibility between two actors. Now, 56 conflicts is actually the highest number that has been recorded since the start, since 1946. So this wow. is quite quite worrying, actually. Um, but uh, we, of course, have to see this in, um, in the context that it happens, because the conflict data doesn't only collect data on number of conflict, it also collects data on people being killed kind of have to because we need to know about this 25 battle threshold and what we have seen is that there is a decrease in people being killed in conflict over the past five years now so in 2020 we had 49,300 people being killed which is not a big number but we have to keep in mind that these are what we call direct death these are people actually being killed by conflict actions so it doesn't count the people who get sick. It doesn't count the people who starve. It doesn't count the people that has to flee. So the consequences of, of conflict is, of course, much bigger. 
than the actual number of people being killed. Uh, and this battle death number uh, is mostly driven by a very few conflicts. Um, as I said, we have been it has been decreasing over the past five years, and that's because the Syria conflict uh, has decreased. So in 2013, uh, more than 50,000 people were killed in Syria, while in 2020, uh, it was less than 5,000. Uh, the conflict that is the most violent and has been for the past three years is in Afghanistan. Um, and in 2020, about 20,000 people were killed in Afghanistan, which is a huge number. But in 2019, the same number were 30,000. So we do see a decrease in this conflict as well. Um, and Syria and Afghanistan are the two most bloody conflicts in, in the world since 89. So we accumulate old people being killed over time. But these are nothing compared to the sort of really bloody and detrimental wars right after the Second World War in the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam War, the Korea War, a lot of the, the conflicts in Indochina. Uh, so while while we see sort of ups and downs uh, and a high number of conflicts now, it's nothing compared to what it was, basically. Mm. So some some reason for optimism then. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but however, an, another thing that we have seen is that as, so when we have fifty six conflicts and which is a high number, and then we see a fairly low number of people being killed, it, it suggests that we have a lot of low level conflicts, and so a lot of conflicts were between twenty five and. 300 people were killed uh, which we which are often then sort of we don't pay too much attention to it but what we do see is that uh, if we look at the areas where these conflicts happens we see that the uh, population the world population that are affected by conflict that live close to conflict events have been increasing uh, since the 1990s uh, and I think that is something we need to be much more aware of, uh, because you can imagine that living in an area with no conflict compared to living in an area where you have a low level of conflict might be quite different. You might you're living with fear. Uh, maybe schools are ruined. You can't send people to health. Uh, so I think this um, the just looking at how many people are being killed uh, it's just one aspect of what conflict does as i said we don't get sort of that uh, consequences of conflict yeah it doesn't uh, tell the whole story necessarily no and i know earlier this year you also um helped save the children on a report about children uh who could be victims of sexual violence in conflict and um that report was really interesting and illuminated another aspect that I guess, wouldn't necessarily um, be shown in in this data set, for example. Yeah, because you, ha you sort of have the same mechanisms that uh, when there are conflicts where you have uh, groups that use sexual violence against children, uh, it doesn't matter really if there's 25 people killed or 100 people killed, these children are still uh, in sort of risk of being abused. 
so it's uh, it's important to sort of highlight the aspects of people living in conflict areas and not just high high violent conflict zones. Mm. Uh, I have a couple questions, follow-up questions about uh, the actual data itself. The first thought I had was, do you ever run into issues where there are conflicting reports? Uh, I mean, of course, this is why having independent media is so important and and journalists are are so vital to uh, the work that we do at Prio. But what happens if you have, as you said, you need three sources, but what happens if you have three sources that really just don't agree at all? Um, How do you determine that? Or is that not a problem that you run into? Um, I think sort of having this three sources... Uh, so if you have three sources that report different things, then you won't report it. I mean, but if you have three sources that uh, report different thresholds, uh, what the data does is that they report um, best uh, estimate of battle death, low estimate and high estimate. So it sort of has this uh, possibility of, of saying, we think it's, this many people being killed, but it could be as little as this or as high as this, uh, which makes it uh, a little bit more or a little bit less rigid in a way. Um, but uh, I'm not sure how often you actually get sort of very conflicting. So it's like there's nothing happened or uh, it was the other group who attacked. Uh, I don't think you get that much. You might, if If anything, it would be that uh, media which are controlled by the state, for example, wouldn't report on. Uh, and and of course, that's also why uh, the UCDP data would be underreporting, because then they would lose uh, sources, basically. Right. And then, kind of also following up on that, um, how how are cases dealt with? For example, if maybe someone is injured and they go to a hospital and they die but it's later uh, or maybe there are complicating factors or maybe it's not entirely clear uh, it's kind of hooking onto what you say about we can't we can't show necessarily the quality of life in the area but those other kind of gray zones um how are those dealt with or is that also just kind of a factor in this possible under reporting and being maybe a bit more conservative i think it would be probably underreported. it would be it, it depends on what the news source would say if it was it would say that five people were sent to the hospital where they died the day after due to their injuries, then they would be counted. But uh, if it just says that they were sent to the hospital, we don't know about their faith. Um, it's not reported because we don't know what happened. And we wouldn't go, or the coders wouldn't go after that information, I think. Yeah, of course. Um, mm. So it's, um, it, it becomes part of the under-reporting, basically. Hmm. So uh, what other trends are you seeing in, in 2020? So um, I think there's two quite interesting things that happened, sort of con- uh, conflict specific. Uh, and one is the uh, conflict in uh, Azerbaij- Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is uh, a conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan about Nagorno-Karabakh, which is uh, a small state within uh, Armenia. Um, and we see this in 2020, this was actually the second most violent conflict in the world. Uh, and it all happened in three months from October till December. 
Uh, and this is, of course, an old conflict from early 90s, uh, which has sort of suddenly uh, just flared up again. And I think sort of the what we learn from this is sort of keeping an eye on these uh, sleeping conflicts that haven't been dealt with, which can be suddenly really, really dramatic and it, it can blow up, uh, basically. So I think that's... Uh, um, good lesson to keep in the back of our minds. Uh, and the other one is um, Tanzania, actually, because in there is a in 2020, there is a conflict registered in Tanzania between uh, the government and the I, and IS. And this is the first time since 1946 that there's been recorded a conflict in Tanzania. Uh, so Tanzania is a country what we often refer to as like a, the dog, dog that didn't bark. So it's a country where we would expect conflict because it has all sort of the predictor of conflict. It's it's poor, it has a, a diverse population, uh, etc. And it's and we haven't seen anything. So it will be interesting to see whether this sort of conflict with IS is a one-off or whether it actually is a sign that something is happening in, in that country now. Mm. Um, and we also... Um, and I also mentioned earlier that we see we have seen this increase in the past ten years, and uh, especially with international civil wars. Uh, and one of the reasons why we have seen all of this is that um, IS uh, is involved in a lot of conflicts around the world. And what they typically do is to go into uh, countries where there is an already ongoing conflict. Um, Tanzania being the exception here. And then they sort of uh, take over the conflict. But because it's a new actor, it counts as a new conflict. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Nigeria, you have the conflict between the government of Nigeria and Boko Haram, but also the government of Nigeria and IS. So it counts as two conflicts, while it is in many ways the same conflict. And this happens in a lot of places all all around the world. So Bangladesh, the Philippines... Now, Tanzania, a lot of the uh, Western, North African countries. Um, so in 2020, 16 out of, the 40, out of the 56 countries were IS related. So if we sort of take out these conflicts, which very often are low level conflicts, um, we get a picture of a conflict landscape that has been much more stable in the past 30 years. So there is there is this sort of very different and very new trend that we have seen over the past, let's say, seven years. Hmm. Yeah, and a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode about IS um, with some other researchers. And I think that that also can uh, lend some, some insight to these types of conflicts. So I will link to that in the description of this podcast. Um, what other types of violence uh, do you see? Because we've kind of only talked about um, state based conflict so far, Um, but maybe you can explain a little bit about the other types of conflicts that you're looking at. So uh, one of the types that we look at is the non-state conflicts. And these are uh, conflicts which are fought between two non-state groups. Um, So these are not civil wars and they haven't been paid that much attention to because we're in many ways are very state-centric in the research. Uh, but these are becoming more and more 
uh, important or they're becoming uh, happening more and more often and more and more people are being killed within these types of uh, conflicts. So in 2020, um, almost uh, 25,000 people or 23,000 people were killed in non-state conflict, which is 50% of the number of state-based conflicts, which is quite high for a type of violence that we don't uh, care that much about. Uh, but of course, non-state conflicts is a very <laughs> big and diverse group. So we usually talk about three types. It's the communal violence, which are between local groups fighting over land, cattle, etc. And then you have uh, informally organized groups, uh, which is a very small category, but it could be around elections, for example, when you have suddenly sort of opposition groups organizing and, and you see violence. And then you have the formally organized groups, which are uh, often the groups fighting the state. They are, some of them have websites, some of them have fighter jets. So these are quite big organized non-state groups. Um, and what we see is that uh, there's no one-to-one -one overlap over sort of conflict countries. So uh, a, a country can have non-state conflicts without having state-based, or it can have uh, state-based and no non-conflict countries. Um, but what we see still is that uh, these non-state conflicts often rise in sort of the shadow of state-based conflicts, that when you have seen a state-based conflict going on for, for a couple of years, you also see a rise in non-state conflicts. And this could be tied to opportunities, the state being preoccupied with fighting its own war, not uh, caring what's happening in, in certain regions of the country. It could also be uh, non-state groups that are splitting up, that they don't agree on how they're going to fight the state and then they split up and there are more groups and they fight each other. Um, and then we have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, Mexico, which is the country with the highest number of non-state conflicts and the highest number of people being killed. And in fact, 16,000 people in Mexico were killed in what they refer to the, as drug, drug wars. Um, and, there is, and, and this is one of the could say controversies within conflict data whether this should be counted as conflict or mm. is it a state conflict or is it sort of non non-state more crime uh, conflicts or violence um, so it's uh, and it's very and as as you understand it's, it's a very diverse group of conflicts so it's to be un able to understand how non-state violence occur, where it occurs, and, and how it relates to different types of violence is, is quite important. And it's not a lot of research on that uh, yet. That's very interesting. Um, and we do have sort of a, a project at Prio that is somewhat related to this, which is um, the Crime Reducing Effective Education, Disaggregating Education and Impact on Violent Crime. Uh, so... It's led by Mauricio uh, Rivera, and hopefully that will shed a little more light on this topic. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what other research will, will come out of this. Yeah, no, definitely. And and this uh, gray area, crime, non-conflict, violence, uh, it's not it's not only uh, related to Mexico. It's it's really all of uh, Latin America. And um, 
So it's, I think it's really important that we sort of get more research on, on shedding some light on what is actually going on here. For example, in 2014, uh, when I mentioned we had 50,000 people being killed in Syria in, in the conflict, at the same time, 60,000 were killed in homicide in Brazil. Mm. So it's also about sort of putting things in perspective. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, I'm going to ask you one final question, but I did not ask you to prepare for this question. So I forgive you if you have no answer. But has there been uh, any trend that you've seen as a result of coronavirus and the pandemic? Or is it not possible to to see that yet in the data? So it might be a little bit early to see that. Um what we did see, and we have done some research on, is is this uh, corona ceasefires, uh, where uh, in March um, the Secretary General asked for a global ceasefire, and and it was actually quite a lot of countries, uh, both states and rebel groups, who agreed to do this or at least supported it, and we saw sort of corona ceasefires in the Philippines, in Colombia, in um, Libya. Um, and we did see sort of very short-term lulls of, of, of non-violence. But overall, we didn't see sort of a decrease in violence due to the coronavirus. And uh, I don't think, even though we see a decrease from 2019 to 2020, I don't think we can attribute to that to the coronavirus, at least not yet. We need to look more into that. Um, but I don't think... It really did uh, affect the conflict level. I think uh, a lot of the groups um, might use it as sort of, uh, at least Taliban uh, said that, uh, yeah, we'll agree to a ceasefire when or if the virus comes to the regions that we control. Mm. Uh, and in Sudan, uh, it was used sort of uh, to prolong the ceasefire and the peace process already going on. So we, there might have been sort of some positive aspects there, but it's really hard to say. Mm. Well, we'll just have to wait till next year when we when we get the new data. <laughs> Thank you so much, Siri. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Music by Martin Nunn.